Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Today's a little bit different. Uh, the last couple weeks, or last week, Pastor Al started us off with this, uh, it's kind of a vision talk, where we're talking about a new practice that we're introducing at Southside Hospitality Nights. And our normal way of Sunday morning teaching and instruction is that we're, we're anchored in a large text that we're slowly walking through it to savor it, to understand it, to um, learn more about God, to see more about God by taking our time going through this uh, larger passage. And we, um, a little while ago, finished our Sermon on the Mount, which was Matthew 5 through 7. And that's how we prefer, that's like the meat and potatoes of how we prefer to do these uh, Sunday morning teachings. This one's a little bit different. We're anchored in a small text, but really this is more of a vision talk about how we sense that the Spirit is leading us to gather in a new way at Southside. So if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, it's going to be a little bit different type of teaching, um, more vision than necessarily being anchored in a text. But we think it's really important. That's why we're spending a couple weeks on it. When the church began meeting a couple thousand years ago, um, sometimes they would go to the temple uh, but, and meet in public places, but really it started very simply in people's homes. So in Philippi, they probably met in Lydia's home for a while, um, and the church in Philippi was probably like 15-ish people, probably mostly women from what we know historically. And it was in this room that they gathered in her house. And that's how it was for most of the church. They would gather in people's living rooms or in an upper room that covered the footprint of the entire house, which is a little bit larger. So it was often meeting in wealthy people's homes that had a little bit more space. As the church began to grow a little bit, and what they would do in there was would have a meal and then they would have a communion and someone would stand up and explain a little bit about Jesus and the gospel and then lead in communion. And then they would sing a couple hymns, probably without instruments. It was very simple. As these gatherings started to begin to grow, they moved. They had to go to a public place where there was more space, but they had to also kind of keep it a little bit underground because it was this was a lot was happening under the Roman authority structure. So they had to be careful, and so they met in these Roman catacombs and graveyards. And if you're trying to stay a little bit hidden and you have a little bit of a larger group, cemetery is a great place to, to meet. It wasn't until about 250 A.D. that the first church building that was designated as a gathering place for churches was found. So they, they found this, um, I forget when this was discovered, and I don't know if it's an archaeological dig, but somehow they found this space, this building, a very small room actually, it had these murals on the wall that they said this must have been a designated place for a church to meet. That's the first time it was really like a public specific building that was designated for the church to gather. Something really weird happened in the early 300s though. Um, there, was a, there was a Roman emperor named Constantine and this is the beginning of the church becoming a little bit less raw. Someone said that if if a movement begins in a cave, it ends in a cathedral. And that starts to be what happens with the church. Constantine becomes the Roman emperor, the first Roman emperor to be a Christian. 
And um, in that time, the way that people worshipped the Roman emperors was um, because they saw them as like gods, godlike figures. And so they would have choirs that would sing to these Roman emperors and about these Roman emperors and lead other people in singing. And some of this is borrowed from Old Testament theology, but they would, they would use it for worship of the Romans. And they had processionals that would worship these Roman emperors. They would burn incense. Um, the Roman emperors would wear these fancy clothing, you know, and it was, they were separate from the rest of the people. And when Constantine became a Christian... I think for some good intention, he wanted to transfer that over to the church. And the church became much more formalized. And they started introducing things like choirs, processionals. It got a little bit more liturgical, and there's a lot of good with that too, but it got more official and formal. The pastor who had designated most of his hours during the week to um, study the apostles' teachings and then to teach it to people at their informal gatherings and homes, what started that way, and just a regular dude that wore regular clothes, began to wear a robe as a way of separating himself as unique from the rest of the community, which again fit a little bit Old Testament theology, but the New Testament is that we're all priests. Some of us just spend more time thinking about this stuff to help other people. It became very, very formal. And the job description of the pastor changed too. From being a place, from being a person in position who is kind of shaping and channeling and influencing the movement of the Holy Spirit among all of the individuals in the group who were initiating relationally with one another who were having people into their homes naturally because the Holy Spirit was compelling them, get together, read scripture, pray together, be in each other's lives. That's how it started. But after Constantine became a Christian and church was more formalized, the church attender became more passive, dependent on the official church workers to provide all the gathering spaces, all the spiritual stuff, and instead of being involved at a personal ministry level where they're initiating with people, praying for people, having people over for Bible studies and things like that, they became very passive. There's a, there's a word that Kara and I have become very familiar with in, in counseling terms. It's, it's over-functioning. And if you're a parent and you over-function, like if you have a teenager and you have to wake them up every morning for school. Like, sweetie, it's time to get out of bed. Please don't get angry at me. Get out of bed. You have to go eat. I'm gonna figure, we'll get you something to eat and then make sure you take your vitamins and brush your, brush your teeth, brush your teeth. Did you brush your hair? Did you wash your face? Like just, okay, I'm gonna help you get out the door. They come home and like you're helping them know when to go to bed and make sure they're brushing their teeth. Like that is hyper over-functioning. And what happens if you have a teenager and you're over-functioning in all of those ways and they go off to college? You're going to be calling them every morning, sweetheart, get out of bed, make, are you, are you going to make, when's your class? Uh, you know, you got to make sure that you're doing, make sure you're going to class. And so what happens when a church overfunctions? Overfunctioning means that you're doing things for someone that they should have personal responsibility for themselves. It, you're, you're decreasing their human agency. Human agency is your, your ability to take responsibility for yourself. And when you overfunction, you do things for someone that they should be doing for themselves. You, you debilitate them. You keep them in a place where they don't flourish as an adult. You, 
You treat them like a little kid when they're a teenager. And when the church overfunctions, we debilitate you. Instead of freeing and empowering and equipping you to do the majority of the work in ministry, you become dependent on four people to make sure you're all living very spiritual lives. That's a part of our job. It's a part of our responsibility. But if you want to be a part of a dynamic kingdom church, kingdom-centered church, the greater percentage of people who are taking personal ministry responsibility, figuring out how to live in the kingdom in their own personal lives while participating as a community in the larger church, that's where it's at. And I think we've overfunctioned ever since Constantine became a Christian. Now, we're not going to reverse the trend. We're not going to fix that. But we're sure going to give it the old college try, aren't we? We're going to try. Because we want to create, you know, part of the, the line that we walk, the fine line that we walk as a church, is we want to create these places that are going to be catalytic for you to have spiritual conversations, for you to talk about real stuff, hard stuff, that, like, you're walking into attention because this is what Scripture says and this is where I'm at, and it happens for all of us. We want to create spaces for those conversations to happen to sharpen one another without making you dependent on us to create all those spaces, but instead as a catalytic place for you to say, hey, let's follow, let's talk some more about that. Why don't you come over tomorrow individually with people beside you? I was going to say in the pews, but in, in your chairs. We want you to maintain agency in your own spiritual life while respecting the need for communal practices. You know, when you plan a church, 95% of the advice you get is plan a million things. Program the daylights out of that. Get them together as often as possible. And something in me just resisted that. And the way that I'm wired, I think, is because of my past ministry experience, let's just do a few quality things well, and let's see what happens as we invite the Spirit to spur us to begin actually to do personal ministry instead of becoming dependent on us to do all of those things. I had a Friday night, uh, Kara and Abby and I, Abby's my 15-year-old daughter, uh, we went on a, a walk. It's good, Abby, I just saw her. It's, it's going to be good. Um, we, <laughs> she's like, it, where, she looked back at, where's the door so I can get out of here? Um, we went on this walk, and um, at the end of the walk, I was absolutely fascinated by what Abby was saying, just brilliant. It was so good. She was like, She's like, you know, there's a lot of things I want to do in my life, and I want to be free to be an individual, and I want to, like, I might take a gap year or two, or I might travel. I, I've got things, places that I want to see. I want to develop in certain areas. And she said, and yet, and, and I hear people at school and people my age saying things like, all you need is you and your favorite cup of coffee or whatever it is, and you just need you. You don't need anybody else. And she said, and yet, I don't believe that either. I think that we do need friends. We do need community, and maybe that's part of shaping who we become as individuals, but we need both, and I think I appreciate both those things. This is incredible, incredible, and she's absolutely right, and we told her uh, when, when mom and I do premarital counseling with people, we tell them, you're not entering into a two-person group think when you become married. You're entering into something where you're actually becoming more the individual that God made you to be. That's part of their responsibility. Your spouse's responsibility is, help you, is to help you become more you, while at the same time being deeply, intimately connected with another human being. 
Being an individual and being part of community, those two things, and we always err on one side. I think the church has erred on the formal side of it's our responsibility to create these places. And yes, it is. And it's our responsibility to pursue personal ministry outside of those few places we gather. The goal is to create spaces for generative, that means life-producing, it does something, it generates something, it changes you some way, generative discipleship conversations in context of loving communities without overfunctioning. Now, 37 people signed up for this monthly Bible study that we do one every, um, every month, one Saturday, and the guys are like, we're struggling to figure out how do we I'm looking at some of the dudes. We're trying to figure out how do we do this well? How do we grow from one another? How do we learn from one another? The guys are slower on the relational intimacy aspect when it's in a big group. But the ladies, man, something is happening there. I think something's happened with the guys too, but we got some catching up to do. Because last month I was praying about the women's group and for some reason, I mean, I was leading the women's group and the men's group, and, God, and I, I was praying about it, and like, I just think that there's something else you want to do, Jesus, and I'm not sure what it is. And I just sensed this inclination, like, yeah, you, you just need to get out of the way. You need to stop going. So I told Kara, and she's like, yeah, I think God's saying you need to step in there. And yesterday I had this incredible conversation that was generative, that was drawing them closer together in deeper intimacy, where they're pressing beneath the just surface of the text to get to the heart of God behind the text, and something really sweet is beginning to happen in those places. And we want to create more spaces for that. And by the way, we're going to do that again in 2022. We'll be launching that again. Those, we only have two more meetings for those. Um, or maybe it's one. Um, but you can sign up for that and be a part of that. It's closed right now, but please join again in 2022. We might even give space for some people to talk about how that's affected and impacted them. But the next thing that we're starting, Pastor Al led us into this last week, is these hospitality nights. If you look in your notes, you see this. This is going to be our community group rhythm. It's two things. It's the monthly hospitality night, and, and Alex is doing a, an incredible job at thoughtfully, prayerfully putting these things together because we don't want this to be haphazard. We don't put community together for the sake of community, for the sake of just doing something. I mean, that's, we feel that pressure sometimes from church culture world, which is terrifying, but we're not going to do that. We want to put together intentional places prayerful places that we've thought about and prayed over, and he's doing a brilliant job with that. And the two things that he has in mind for our community group structure is these monthly hospitality nights starting next month, and then these discipleship pods where people in your community you're going to be meeting in smaller groups, same gender groups, where you're going to be doing some soul care. You're going to learn how to actually help one another's soul flourish in Christ. That's going to be the the purpose of those smaller gatherings outside of the larger monthly hospitality night. And this is in your notes. Our desire for these community group gatherings is that smaller, more intimate communities of people are beginning to form at Southside where we are learning how to personally care for one another and disciple one another in the ways of Jesus. And we didn't want to program it for every single week because that can get exhausting. And we want to leave space for you to initiate personally and socially with people inside of your group. 
So we're not saying this is the only time you should meet. We're saying use this as a catalyst, as a monthly placeholder in your schedule to make sure that at least you're meeting with people once a month and then go above and beyond that. And maybe you have a group text going. And it's a wonderful fall evening. And you have a campfire pit in your backyard. And you text your group, your community group, and say, hey, it's beautiful out. We got some s'more stuff. Come on over. We're going to have this campfire at 7. Just, you don't need to reserve or anything. Just show up. Bring your own camp chair. Or maybe it's Halloween and you have a wonderful, your neighborhood's perfect. You get a lot of kids coming through your house uh, for Halloween and you say, hey, we're going to be playing Monster Mash all night and having hot cider. Uh, come over and help us bring pass out candy bars and bring really good candy bars. Don't bring Smarties <laughs> and don't bring the Starbursts and those little candy bars. Like pass out really good, like everybody brings some really good candy bars to pass out. So we're the best house in the neighborhood. That's so much better than trunk or treat. But we're going to, that's the type of stuff that we want you to be doing in your neighborhoods, inviting people over to experience, man, this, this person lives here and I don't hate them. Like they're not weird. They're neat. They're nice. They're generous. They gave me a really big candy bar. Do stuff like that with your community group. These monthly gatherings are just placeholders for you to begin to exercise your social muscle of relating to people and reaching out to people. Alex uh, picked this wonderful text. It's Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. as kind of the anchor of this philosophy and theology of community groups and why we're doing this. And so I'm going to read it. We have no idea who wrote Hebrews, so whoever did, they said, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So someone had to say, someone needs to say this, you guys should start getting together, you shouldn't stop getting together, you shouldn't stop being together. That, that needs to be louder, I think, in our culture. That needs to be more emphasized in our culture because it's so easy for us to get so busy with all the activity of life that we don't, we don't get together anymore. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, Michael Allen says, there's a communal context of faith. It takes a church not just to raise, but to sustain a Christian. You know who I need in order to remain a Christian or at least remain acting like a Christian? You guys. You know who you need? You need each other. Every single person has a role. Every single person. I want to look at this word consider um, just a little bit more. And this is from, I read this in... Uh, word studies in the Greek New Testament uh, by West, and it says, consider is the translation of, oh man, katanoeo. Is, did I say that right? Alex is going to be, he's taking Greek right now, so he's going to be a resident Greek, but it sounds, that sounds right, doesn't it? Katanoeo, I have no idea. Um, which someone, if you know Greek, you can yell it out. It's okay. Um, which speaks of attentive, continuous care. That's what consider, consider means. Attentive, Continuous care. The exhortation is to take careful note of each other's spiritual welfare. What would it be like to be a part of a church where you have a community of people around you that know what's happening in your life? You don't have to pretend. You don't have to act. 
If you're angry, you can come to church angry. If you're confused, you can come to church confused. If you're depressed, you can come to church depressed. And we're all looking, we're all trying to figure out together what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus who's angry or depressed or confused. Instead of saying, don't act like that anymore or I don't want to see that part of your life. I just want to see the happy, cheerful, churchy person. What if we really were real instead of just said that, you know? And that requires getting to know people in safe spaces, which we are praying that these hospitality nights will be that. So let's talk about ways to prioritize considering each other's spiritual welfare. Uh, these are in your notes. One, live at a reasonable pace, allowing time for prayerful reflection upon the spiritual lives of your friends. So this means that you have, you know, to have every minute of your day scheduled so that you can't think about other people in your church community and pray for ways to really encourage them in the faith and serve them and love them. If your life is so full then you can't do that, that you can't do that, that's not God's fault. Somewhere we got out of line with what he has for us. Because what do we say around here? This isn't, this isn't um, I didn't make this up. Someone else said this. But God gives you all the time, attention, and resources to do everything he's asking you to do today. Not everything that you think you need to do. Not everything that everyone else thinks you should do. But everything he's asking you to do today. So you need to be quiet enough to ask God, what do you want me to do today? And if you do that, you will have space to do the things he values. Like thinking about the certain person you're sitting next to and praying about how to encourage them in the faith. Emily Weckeser made these prayer cards several years ago, and they are like four by six cards. And what I loved about these is it gave me space to write out people's names at the top of them and then specific ways I want to be praying for them and specific passages that go with that and then answers in the back. What if every single one of us had four by six cards with several, ten people's name from Southside on it, and every week you spent time thinking about them and praying and ask God, asking God, how can I encourage them? You think he'd answer that? You think Jesus would like that? It's thoughtfully reflecting on our friends' lives and praying for them in specific ways. That's where the real work of ministry is done. Number two, become phenomenal at asking questions and listening. So, you know, if you want to know what's going on in each other's lives, you have to know what's going on in each other's lives by asking them, making space for that. You know, one of the things that interrupts or weakens this type of bond that we can have with one another is, what do you think it is? What's something that interrupts the flow of a face-to-face conversation as much as anything? Do you guys have any ideas? Is anybody brave enough to yell it out so I don't have to? Phone. You <laughs> see, I, I got someone that's going to yell it out now. So this is beautiful. Yeah, a phone. I, didn't, I wasn't going to say that, but we'll go with that one. That's a good one. Nothing weakens the fabric of a face-to-face conversation. Nothing like a, like a phone. It interrupts. And if you don't think it does, ask the person you're talking with. And Gary DeLashman, in his incredible, and if you're on our weekly email, you already got a heads up about this talk, but he does an incredible teaching called Information Technology, Using It or Being Used by It. And he asks a, several questions. Two of them are this. Do I schedule regular face-to-face time with family, Christian brothers and sisters, and non-Christians? Is, 
genuinely, is face-to-face conversation a priority in your life? Unrushed. You're not doing anything except for maybe going on a walk or a bike ride beside this person. Like, genuinely, you value that so much that's a part of your schedule. That's what we would love to see and experience here. The second one is, am I growing in my enjoyment of an effectiveness in personal conversation, listening, full attention, etc.? Someone said, um, I hate saying someone said, but I, this is like, I shouldn't do this because I can't give the right person the credit, but somebody said, um, the experience of being understood versus interpreted is so compelling you can charge admission. You should pay attention to this. Most of the conversations we have at a face-to-face level, we're interpreting and finishing the other person's thought for, yeah, I know what you're going to say, and they, you jump in and you say what you want to say. What if we said, I'm giving you my full attention until I understand completely what you're saying? Now, I understand this is really hard, and I'm going to home, go home, and my wife and daughter's going to be like, yeah, that'd be great, Greg. We would love that. That's hard to do. It's really hard to do. And it's a practice. It's something to lean into. It's something I want to get better at, and it's something all of us should want to get better at. But what if this was the church? And there's a lot of churches that are doing this really well, and a lot better than us. And what if this was a church that was getting better at that? That when someone had a conversation with you, they walked away absolutely compelled by how attentive you were. You looked at them. You asked great questions. You weren't rushing out of here. You loved them enough to want to know their story. Those things are important if we're going to consider how we might love and encourage others. This is a whole different plane. This is Discipleship 1000. Not easy. Not easy for any of us. All right, these are two ways we can practice obeying this commandment in Hebrews to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Um, And these are things that we hope to see spawned out of these hospitality nights, again, because it is just so stinking difficult. And again, I want to say this. You have so much grace here. We're not going to be pounding you. There's, there's no, if you're feeling shame right now because you're not just not doing that well, you do not feel shame. You have all the grace you need. We love you exactly as you are. We're just introducing ways for you to flourish more as a human being in Christ. So there is no judgment here. Just like with everything that we say, this is an invitation. This isn't a condemnation. We don't do that. There is one voice that does that, and we're not on his side. This is an invitation to a deeper way of living with others. So if you're feeling shame or, man, I don't do really good with that, so what? Join the club. It's okay. It's okay. Last week, Alex talked about the first two things we will do together at Hospitality Nights, and that's make friends and eat a meal together. And I'm going to finish with the last two, which is share communion and serve one another. These are the two that he assigned me to talk about, and they're really, really good and really, really important. And I'm not going to talk a whole lot about this because we've already been going for a little bit here. But I want to give you an idea of why we're doing these two things. We're going to finish with this. The, one is, the first one of the two is share communion. This reminds us that we don't just get together for the sake of just getting together. We don't get together for community. Community for the sake of community is not good enough. We get together in community to celebrate what's at the center of our community, and that's our union with Christ. We're getting together to celebrate the fact that Jesus brought us together and we get to be together forever. Isn't that cool? 
And let's remind each other of that in some type of formal way, and that's why we're doing communion. There's all sorts of reasons why people get together. Watch the Browns get another victory. That's a great reason to get together. Um, some people have common hobbies and interests. That's a great reason to get together. Some people get together with friends after work and for appetizers. That's a great reason to get together. But when you take away the things they have in common, if the Browns moved again, that'd be heart-wrenching. And the people that you get together to watch the games with, what would happen? What would happen if you stopped working with the people that you go have appetizers with? Everything else in the world, when you take the reason people get together away from them, what happens to the relationships? They gradually and then suddenly disappear. But when you get together because of your union in Christ, it's different. It's the only thing that actually enhances your relationship. It makes you closer. It makes the conversations richer and better. The love and the care for one another far more lasting. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, where two or, two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I with them. Wherever Jesus is, things get interesting and good. And there's a greater sense of love and care for one another because that's just who he is. They used to have these Greco-Roman wine parties in the early church and, you know, sounds like a lot of fun. People would get together and they'd try these different vintage wines and um, it, they would get together around the wine. Something really weird happened in a couple of those some of the people became Christian. And they said, well, we got the wine, bring some bread, give the gospel, and they introduced communion to some of these. And some of these groups became churches. And some of the early churches were designed to replicate these types of Greco-Roman wine parties. And when they were just gathering around different types of wine, it was one thing, I mean, they enjoyed it. But when they introduced Jesus to this, it intensified the relationship in a way that nothing else could. The purpose of our hospitality night is not just for the sake of community, but to celebrate our union in Christ together. And communion is a way of bringing that to the forefront. Just a really, really quick lesson, communion. There's a vertical aspect of communion and there's a horizontal aspect of communion. Communion is when we are spiritually nourished through these elements of bread and wine or grape juice, um, and we remember the work that Christ did to bring us into his family. And the vertical aspect of that is between you as an individual follower of Jesus and God. It's you doing business with God. Okay, I've been struggling this area, Lord. I'm reminded again of how good you were, the sacrifice that you made for me. We're good again, and I'm sorry. There's a, hor there's a, there's a vertical aspect that... You're not worried about the people around you. You're thinking about God. We celebrate that once a month here in this public service. But there's a, there's a horizontal aspect to it as well. And we're going to celebrate that in these monthly hospitality nights. The horizontal aspect is Jesus lives in me and he lives in you too. And because of that, we're closer than, than blood. We're closer than family. And when family becomes Christian together, that's a whole nother bond. But what we're saying when we gather together and have community, have communion in these hospitality nights is Jesus is the center of this whole thing. And if it wasn't for him, we probably wouldn't like each other. At least some of us, you know. Jesus brings wildly different people together to make a point. 
And that's why we have communion, celebrating the horizontal aspect of it. And again, in the ancient church, the way they did this was they would go to a house church and they would have a big loaf of bread and they would break off a piece of that. They would have communion at that house church and then someone would run it over to the next house church, maybe it's a quarter mile away in the same town, and they would break off another chunk of that same loaf of bread and then they would run it to somebody else. There's like four house churches in the same town if it's a large town. They would use the same big loaf of bread to say that we are all united together in Christ. It's a beautiful image of that. They were celebrating the, the horizontal aspect. Lastly, is we serve one another. I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, but there's something really sweet. There's a really sweet taste that is left in your mouth when someone, when a fellow believer, a fellow follower of Jesus serves you and loves you in a way that's just like, wow, man, that was really sweet. That was really thoughtful. That was really cool. It, it, it enhances your, your relationship with God. Uh, John Owen said that every self-evidencing act of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and Self-evidencing act of the Holy Spirit is you're listening to a teaching and something has more energy to it. You're like, wow, I needed to hear that. Or you're singing a song and a line sticks out a little bit more and it awakens you to deeper affection for God. It's a self-evidencing act of the Holy Spirit. It makes you want God more. It makes you love God more. It makes you experience his goodness more. It's, It's praying and all of a sudden you start praying like, most of our prayers are just we're praying, but sometimes it feels like, oh, wow, I really sense heaven overlapping with earth here, and you pray a little bit differently. Self-evidencing acts of the Holy Spirit. It's a way that God reminds you, I'm real, and you'll see me again. And for now, I'm just going to make you taste the goodness of my love for you. That's every self-evidencing act of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is like a drop of water from heaven, which makes you long for the ocean from which it came. I think the same effect is true when we gather together in Christian community and we experience other people serving us in love. It's like a little drop from the ocean of love that is God. And that little drop makes you thirst more for him and for his goodness. Christian community, like everything else, is countercultural. When everybody else gets together, there's one question we're asking. Does does this make my life better? Christian community is different. You don't base how good it is or how you're going to commit to it based on does it make my life better and am I enjoying this? Is this good for me? Christian community doesn't operate that way. It's a whole other level. It says, does this allow me to make someone else's life better? That's the question we ask. When you're a follower of Jesus, your idea of greatness is serving other people because that's what he said. We don't get together because we like it, we enjoy it, It makes my life so much better. It makes me happy. I leave there feeling like I'm on cloud nine. We get together because this is another opportunity to make someone else feel that way. In other words, you go to hospitality nights and you scan the room and you say, how can I serve these people in a way that makes them thirst more for God in their lives? And what would it be like to be a part of a community like that where none of us are judging what it does for us, but all of us are judging what we can do for others. All right, we're launching in November. Alex is meeting with leaders today. I would encourage you to lean into the inconvenience of this. Um, Alex is going to be giving more details on how you are going to be invited into these groups. He's, he's going to be taking care of all of those things. Um, 
And I want to leave you with this thought. And that is every spiritual discipline that yields fruit in our life is a type of disruption. Every single one of them. You, get up, you have to get up a little bit earlier in the morning so that you can read scripture a little bit and so that you can pray a little bit in an unrushed way. That's a disruption to your life, absolutely. Fasting is a type of disruption. Silence and solitude is a type of disruption. Christian community is a type of disruption. Coming here every Sunday morning, I bet you could figure out things to do that are different than this, but you want to yield the goodness of this disruption in your life. Every single spiritual discipline is inconvenient. That's the point. It's a way of saying, I am seeking you. And God, according to Hebrews eleven six, 6, says, seek me and I'll make it worth your time. I will reward those who seek me. And every one of them is inconvenient. Every single one of them. Because it's a way of saying, my desire isn't as important as my allegiance to Jesus. And this is another one of those. This is going to be inconvenient for probably 99.99% of the people in this room, including me. It's going to be a disruption to my life to do this once a month. And it's the way it works. And over a course of years, not weeks, not months, but over a course of years, you will see the reward that comes from being a part of this rich community of people who have got your back no matter what. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.